Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, I was saying uh, before or off air, I was I was mentioning to our, our guest today, Kanisha Aurora, uh, who you are going to be blown away by, that oftentimes I don't share even with my family sort of who I'm going to be interviewing. Um, but those who know, I, I did I did sort of uh, <laughs> break that rule and I, I shared with my my family when I interviewed Charles Barkley just because grew up watching him. Um, but when I read the the email that came in from Kanisha Aurora. I immediately that night shared with my family at dinner this incredibly powerful young woman whose voice the the, the world now is is paying attention to, and I hope uh, continue to do so for quite some time. And I hope that I'm able to bring and bring justice to what she's accomplished and what she wants for the future, um, because I think in a day and an age where we are incredibly cynical, uh, it is also incredibly important to be hopeful and optimistic and to find inspiration in the next generation. And if anybody represents next, it's Kanisha. She is, we'll go down the list here, but UNESCO youth representative, a senator at Western University. She is a Princess Diana Award winner, which look that up. That is a very prestigious award. Uh, Bachelor's of Medical Science in her studies. She also, the Chegg Global Student Prize out of 150 countries, she's made it into the top 50 and they will be announcing this prize, uh, which is very prestigious, towards the end of 2022. So we got connected because you spoke, um, well, it, was, it wasn't recently, but it was a couple months ago, but you spoke at the United Nations at the Transforming Education Pre-Summit in Paris. Uh, Kanisha, I just want to say, I mean, I, I, you can tell already I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably breaking all kinds of journalistic rules here by being such a fan of what you're doing. And maybe it's the dad in me. Um, how are you settling into the recognition that you're getting? Let's start with that. Oh, it's been so humbling. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm so excited for today's conversation, but truly it's been so humbling. And especially when I um, was a recipient for the Chegg Global Student Prize, which was just announced very recently, it felt really nice to know that I was the only one from Canada, but this award didn't only feel like mine. It was kind of an award for Canada. And just the number of emails and messages and really like every inbox has been spammed of mine, but it's just so heartwarming. <laughs> it means a lot that, you know, the work that I'm doing actually touches people beyond just my family and outside into the community and the world at large. And that a lot of people now want to get involved and start doing, you know, initiatives for our Hope Sisters, the nonprofit that my sister and I founded and just really want to get involved in the grassroots level. So it's been incredibly humbling. Kanisha, tell me when you first recognized the power of words and language, because you are incredibly well-read. And if people go and listen to your, your speech at the United Nations, and we'll talk about some of the, uh, the pros within that speech, there had to have been a time when you either recognized it or you had been almost like bathed in so much language that it just became second nature to you. But was there a point in time when you started to recognize the power of words and the combination of words when you lay them out almost like a song? Absolutely. When I was 16 years old, I was elected as the student trustee for a school board here in the Toronto area. And my best friend at the same time had just dropped out of high school because of the inaccessibility of menstrual hygiene products and there are washrooms. 
And I didn't understand that there was such thing as societal stigmas. I'm a huge optimist. So growing up, I thought the world was perfect, but I quickly realized that systems and people are not that perfect. And so when my best friend had dropped out, I realized that maybe I was in a position to make a difference. And so the first time I brought forward the motion to provide free menstrual hygiene products, of course, a lot of the male colleagues on our board were very against this. But I realized that taking it away from the table, I took this conversation to my own hands and I started educating through language and showcasing the words and experiences of young people and young girls who are menstruators to show just how prominent of an issue this was in our society. And a lot of the times I heard that, you know, we've never heard this was an issue before. So why is it all of a sudden a problem? And that's when I realized that speaking out is just half the battle of changing the nature of systems. And just because we can share our experiences, that's when other people start to learn and want to maybe see how can we change the direction of where we are headed. So so let's then turn, and and you touched on it there. You didn't use the word, but I hear you and I think advocate, right? Someone who is advocating maybe for themselves, but really more importantly for others, and maybe for those that don't have voice or platform or the wherewithal to I guess, find a path to be able to communicate something of of empowerment uh, and change. Was that something that you've had in you? Or do you have sort of a social justice gene inside of you? Because I think that that you can see that even in young kids that see a wrong and would like to correct a wrong or find a solution. Was like the young, I mean, you're still young, but when you were, let's say, in primary or elementary school, were sort of the roots already there? Absolutely. I think you can ask my parents that too. In the dinner table, I'd always be advocating for different issues and we'd always <laughs> have arguments or as they say, discussions. But yeah, definitely. Since I was very young, I remember like one time in school, we learned about animal cruelty and I was probably like in grade two or something. And we learned about how, you know, animals are being treated unfairly in circuses. And my dad just got like tickets for the circus. And I was like, no, we can't go to the circus. Like we can't be supporting this. So definitely since a young age, I have always been taking um, the issues that I learn about in social media or school or newspapers and trying to make a difference even in my own household. Let's talk about, uh, and I'm going to put on my dad hat, and I'm the uh, dad of a soon-to-be eight-year-old, very strong uh, little girl. Uh, Let's talk about the balance between take the social media world and the way in which we portray, especially the U.S. I'm not going to pin this on Canada. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, but I'm sure you share many of these. as just as a country, is the balance between the objectification and also the celebration of females, but from a visual standpoint. So understanding that and connecting with audience, but also understanding that there is voice and substance if you're going to advocate. And it feels like those that get it right thread an incredibly delicate needle to make sure that they can be sort of in both camps understanding the frailty of each and the power of them together. How have you understood the balance and responsibility of your voice as you've got more recognition while also understanding that you're also in a world being a, being a female that sadly is objectified and is not has not historically been taken uh, and given the credit just based on your gender. So how do you understand and how do you square those two elements so that you can provide a different experience for those young and old, female and male, um, in the way in which you intend? That's a really powerful question. And 
for me, like, I'm not going to pretend that growing up, it was all easy. I was an immigrant from New Delhi. I moved to Montreal, which is like the French part of Canada. And um, I was the only person of color in our classroom, let alone the only girl um, in science classes or STEM fields. And I remember being in one of my robotics team like sessions, and I had just become captain. And one of the boys had asked me, he was like, Kanisha, why do you spend so much time on STEM education and like robotics after school when the only thing you're going to be in the future is a housewife? And this was the 21st century. Wow. And this was in high school. I was so confused. I was left with the thought of how can someone think this way after all of the effort that I've put in, but even just about girls in general still. And so it's it's easy to say that girls who are respected or women who are respected in higher positions won't ever face this kind of scrutiny. But that's also false because no matter where we are, whether we're in STEM fields, whether we're advocating at the UN, whether we're in politics, we're still going to be questioned just because of our gender. And for all the girls listening to this podcast, I really hope that we never take it personally. Because for me, I never took it as a reflection of my abilities, but just because of the reflection of their mindsets and their stigmas and their stereotypes or their lack of education. So for myself, I always try to respect myself more than the world respects me. And I think that's why now that I'm receiving this recognition, it doesn't mean the world to me because what has always meant the world to me is whether my parents think a certain way about me or whether I feel comfortable with the person that I am. And it's always a difficult battle of the world's perception versus your perception. And I think it takes a lot of courage to always fight through the person that you want to be against the person that the world sees you to be. And it's really difficult. I think every single day is a battle, but once you stop thinking of it as a battle and just you continue to put your head down and do the work that you want to do, it doesn't feel as much as, oh, a girl is fighting against all these girls. But I think it's also about finding the environments that really help you grow. And my university and the Senate has really been that for me. They really accept student advocacy, whereas I hadn't seen that in the spaces that I was in before. So it really has redefined my view of the support systems around the world. Kanisha, I think that one mistake people will make is that in in the definition or the activity of defining who they are, what they support, what they stand for, it's often at the expense or the exclusion of something that is opposite. And I'm curious from your vantage point, and you're obviously taking in so much information at your age and trying to understand how it fits and applies and how you can mold it. How can we incorporate in boys and men into the conversation where it doesn't feel adversarial. It doesn't feel like it's an either or. It doesn't feel like it's about paying a repentance for a, you know, the way in which maybe females were treated in our respective countries over the, the millennia. But it's a way to incorporate into the benefit of all to have a much more inclusive conversation, approach, context for existence? How can we incorporate in the male voice so that it's not an either or? And and do you agree with me that that is imperative to, that we need to do that? That is absolutely necessary. And I definitely agree with you. I think from an education standpoint, we see that by the age of five, girls start to think they're inferior to their male counterparts. And that's at the age of five. So it starts in elementary schools. And the conversation, I think what we've been doing wrong for so many generations is really comparing the fact that Women, yes, might have been seen inferior in the past, but instead of only acknowledging that past, we need to say that, explicitly say that that's not acceptable. And instead of saying, oh, girls should be equal, that should just be like, that should just be obvious. 
in our day and age now. We shouldn't have to say that treat your girls equally. It should just be like, oh yes, treat everyone equally. Because even in that language, we're starting to exclude a certain gender population that in that, you know, subconsciously makes us think that, oh, maybe there's a reason for why girls have been excluded in the past. And maybe there is a segregation when there shouldn't be at all. And that's what I notice now in classrooms, like my sister is four years younger than me. They were never taught, you know, girls are separate than boys because it was fair for everyone to learn about what was going on in the human body because that's what makes us very human. And I think started from a young age, that's how we can really shift the dialogue now. It's well put. I, I wonder, and you may not have an answer for this, but I do think at some point you, you'll reflect on this, I would think, because you, you seem to be a very, very thoughtful human being. I would imagine a challenge, and really I want you to push back if you think I'm wrong here. I would imagine a challenge with every sort of accomplishment that you are acknowledged with and that you are bestowed, right, based on hard work and who you are, it can almost serve as a double-edged sword where it actually creates some distance and separateness from those that are your age, from other young women, because it almost feels like, well, but Kanisha's on a different level. Like I, either I can't relate to her or maybe she can't relate to me. And so I'm wondering how you've thought about that because you've been on this accelerated path even over the, just the last couple of years in how do you maintain a sense of groundedness and authenticity, not because you have to prove it to yourself, but so that you can maintain connection with those that you hope to embolden to join you on these fights. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. And it has been a challenge. So you're not you're not wrong when you say that. And I think for my generation, what really frustrates me is that we value so much recognition or what these superficial things might be like, especially because of social media, the number of followers, the likes, or the engagement that you have. And for me, when I interact with peers my age, it's sometimes that I I usually only fit in with those who have like the same superficial acknowledgements, or that I, I really fit in with people who are on the same mission as me, and who are really driven by just making an impact in society. And I wish more young people were united because of that and not because of how we superficially look, because of our superficial interests by the different popular cliques, the dance groups, the basketball jocks or whatever it might be. We really need to be united by our collective voice and our passion for making a difference. And that's why, you know, through the chapters that we started, I found some of my best friends. And of course, my sister and I are on the same path. So she's like my soulmate. But I really have found a lot of these best friends across the world, people in Malawi who same who share the same passion as transforming education or just spreading hope in different ways. And they challenge me. They challenge my perspective and I challenge theirs. And together we are trying to redefine what really it means to be hopeful and how every human can be hopeful. And I think when we all come together for that shared vision, that's when we can stop having these superficial conversations or start judging people or starting or start to associate ourselves in superficial manners and actually form deeper connections. So it's hard for my generation because we're all swarmed by TikTok and social media, but I know we can do it. Let's talk about the word independence. So recently I was guest lecturing at Vanderbilt University, a fantastic institution. And this topic came up with these graduate students. And it was almost as if they had been tethered to the ground through their institutionalization of being in public education their whole lives, where they were feeling the challenge of sort of traversing this 
what feels like a, this this very wide chasm from not having an opinion and being a quote unquote in classic student to being an adult and being asked to have an opinion and feeling very uncertain about sort of where they are on that spectrum and feeling confident and secure in their own independence in the things that they don't know, the things that they feel pretty confident that they've experienced and they have some ability to communicate about that experience. What are we doing right? And what are we, what are areas, let's just say, we'll stay positive. Where are there are opportunities to help to support more independent thinking for the younger generation, for your sister who's four years younger, and those, whether they're in Canada, the US, or just even the West in general, so that young people, it's not such a leap to say, well, wait a minute, I've spent the first 20 years answering to what I've been told to do. I actually have an opinion. I have a thought process. I can break down a problem. I can have a conversation that may be uncomfortable because I understand I have a voice that's valued and I can communicate that whether I'm 12 or I'm 22. So where do you sit on sort of the spectrum of independence and how we can maybe do a better job in finding opportunities to support young people? Yeah, thank you for asking. I think for me personally, I feel as though independence is often looked at as a very positive thing and the flip dependence is looked at as a very negative thing. I've grown up in a family where we're all very codependent, but we're all very still individualistic and we have independent thoughts or ideas. And so I think for our generation, we often associate independence with the word freedom and then dependence with the word slavery when it's not actually the reality. And I would really love to see more young people being a bit more dependent in the way that we work together and the way that we formulate thoughts and ideas. So by saying independence, what we often do is at a younger age, we say that the person with the most different idea is often the most valued or the often the most correct or often the most popular or whatever it might be, everything positive. And if you have a very similar mindset to everyone else in society, then you're and you're dependent on people's opinions for their thoughts, then you're very much the same. When that those two things can be opposite, but not at the opposite spectrums of positive and negative. So that's one thing that I'll say. But for myself personally, I was in the IB program, so that's the International Baccalaureate Program, and they really focus on design thinking and open-mindedness. So we all had very different thoughts that were also dependent on each other's thoughts. So let's say, for example, Stacey would have a thought about, you know, the color pink is is promotes a lot of positivity. And I would be like, yes, but it also promotes a lot of warmth. And I got that idea based on what Stacy had said. So I'm dependent on her thought. And I think those are things that we need to be mindful of as educators, as you know, people who transform education systems, because there's a lot of correlation between the two in you have to have dependent and independent thoughts to be able to achieve open-mindedness. And so for myself, that's something that I have always been doing. Um, I've always been trying to listen to other young people. And I only learned the importance of that when I came into high school. And I learned that maybe being different is not the best thing because you're not working with other people. And that's that's kind of my personal story and my insight into that. It's the collective. Uh, I want to make sure that we talk about the experience at the United Nations. So I, we will talk about some of the things that you said. Very well put. You could be a poet um, in another lifetime, or maybe this time lifetime if you choose to. Um, ta- talk with me about two things. One, when you found out you would be speaking, I, I want to understand. Take me into that. What the conversation with your family? What what you're willing to share? Just sort of maybe the. I, I don't know how excited. Just I want people to sort of understand that feeling. Um, and and then second. Second, I'd love to hear what it was like bef- right before you walked on stage. 
that that moment in time because we can all see the speech but talk with me about how each step to the podium was either heavy or light or you felt like you were floating like i want to know that kind of so tell me those two let's bookend it from when you first found out to right when you knew you started your walk to the stage on the stage so I've been working in UNESCO's youth network for a while now, and I've been writing a lot of policies, working with a lot of young people, and I've been doing a lot to prepare for this Transforming Education Summit, especially the pre-summit. I've been going to all these weekly meetings and you know, staying up, writing policies, and just researching, but I actually only found out five days before that I was going to be giving <laughs> the opening speech, so I really Maybe had Maybe that no was better, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so I wrote my speech at 3 a.m. and like I had to give the speech around 10 a.m. And I had a, I had another speech before that around 8 a.m. So I really only had like four hours to process the whole thing. And I finished writing the speech at 3 a.m. But I think for me, when I told my family, I mean, one, we, we didn't really know it was happening. Like it was so surreal that we didn't believe it. They were like, oh, that's amazing. You're already going to Paris. And that's what we were excited about. But then we had this other thing to add on top of the tour site excitement. So it was like confusing, I guess, to process because we were like, really, is it actually happening? Like, is it really that amazing? So I think my parents are always like, we never knew you were that important to the world. <laughs> and it was funny to hear that from them. But going on the plane and just thinking about, you know, what am I really going to say? My sister always tells me that every moment in life is is kind of builds you for your next moment. And so when I was on that stage, it didn't feel like it was the biggest moment in my life, but it felt like every moment, every experience, every conversation, every young person, every you know senior that I had met kind of led me for that moment for speaking their truth and the truth of our society. And so when I was on that stage, I was kind of like I was floating. I remember we were first in a VIP room and we had like 15 bodyguards taking us out. It was the president of Ethiopia, the president of Sierra Leone and Miss Audrey Azule, who's UNESCO's um, director general. And I didn't know just the, the power that people in that room had. We were all on stage before the opening speech. It was all the ministers and all the presidents and I was there too. And the crowd just went wild. They were so excited to see all these people. But what I realized in my conversations is that we're all human beings. And I know we have these titles and I know it's easy to get very like bombazzled or whatever by these titles and these figures and the power that people have. But I think the true power that we all have as human beings is that we are human beings. And the influence that, you know, the president of Ethiopia has is the same that any child that I've met in foster care has. We all have the same potential. And that's what was really, I think, whole circle for me that I really understood that you can be the president of a country and still not be as influential as a child in foster care or still not have the same amount of power as a child in foster care. And um, it's often to me, leadership is not about a position, but about the action that we have. And so I really hope that the key message anyone takes from our conversation is that we are as powerful as a president, because we can go right now to our neighbor, lend a hand. And I tell you that they will think we're more powerful than the president that might have not been impacting them directly. And so that moment for me was surreal, but every moment for me is surreal. And now when I FaceTime children in Ukraine and I hear about their stories, those conversations are also as surreal. And they really help me kind of be grounded in understanding the world better and just being a bit more mindful of the impact um, and the direction that we are headed as a society. And one thing that I will say 
is that if we have the potential to create war, those same people can also create peace. And if we can hate our siblings, our neighbors, our peers, we can also learn to love them. And the difference lies in education. So let's all start educating ourselves to be more positive and love the world. Well, well said. I want to, I'm going to quote you here. So from your speech, and there was a lot there. Um, but I just love this. And so I don't know if I have a direct question other than wanting to understand maybe what the, when you were writing, because I write, and so I understand that feeling late at night, in the middle of the night when you're writing and you get sort of in the zone or you, and I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm writing something and I, as I'm writing, I try to keep myself from being aware that I'm in a zone, you know, because you don't want to trip yourself up. But as you're writing, you you almost, you hope that the feeling that you have is getting transcribed into the words that you're typing onto the screen or that you're writing onto the notebook. And sometimes there's a disconnect, right? When you're really in the zone, it's you think it, you feel it, and you, you're able to communicate it. Um, and so I want to know about this. So you here's what you said. So you said, when people are educated, society is transformed. A book becomes a dream, a pen becomes a policy, and a microscope becomes the cure for cancer. So I love sort of the rhythm. It feels very much like you're writing a song or a score. Um, tell me about that. Did, did, was there a moment where you felt, you felt that in your writing process in the middle of the night where you just kind of went, I need, you know, it's like you're snapping your fingers. Like you, you, you wanted a rhythm. Tell me about that because I thought it was incredibly effective the way in which you came up with that approach. Thank you. Yeah. I had been writing the speech like three days before and I'd been thinking so hard about what is like the most perfect thing to say. And then I called my sister up because she's like my rock. And I was like, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm, I'm so nervous. I've been given such a big opportunity <laughs> yeah. and I just wanted to sound right. And she said, just stop stressing, listen to your heart and speak the truth. And I think for me, what I did and what I ended up doing was just listening to my heart. I thought about every young person that I met. I thought about every senior that I met, every person that I had influenced. I thought about my parents who had been immigrants and who literally moved across the country to give me better education. I thought about my teachers. I thought about our school presidents. I thought about students. I just thought about everyone in that moment. And I thought, I said to myself, what is the truth about education? And why is education so powerful? And for me, it wasn't even about reading a textbook. It wasn't about getting a pen, but it was about the potential that each of those tools in education had, and which is why we say it's so important. So when my sister and I create these hope eggs and we send books to children in Malawi, I was thinking, why do we send books? Why don't we send something else? And it was really because a book can become a dream. A pen can become a policy and a microscope can become the cure for cancer. And it's only by investing in these tools and in young people that we can transform society. All of the biggest global crises that we have in our time can be solved by education. We educate ourselves about climate, about climate literacy, then that transforms into us taking climate action. We teach ourselves about digital literacy, that becomes digital transformation. And it's only through education when we can truly transform the world around us and build the many futures that we have for the world. Let, let's close with this. Um, and hopefully this is the first of many conversations. But and I, it sounds so cliche, but I'm just going to ask it because if I don't, the, the little voice in my head will say, why didn't I ask this? But what, what is your, now that you've seen the power and the, re, the receptivity of your voice to, to audiences in different parts of the world, what is your dream? In essence, what do you want to be doing? And has that changed since you've been able to prove to yourself to some degree 
that you can do it, that people are very receptive to you and you're getting increased responsibility and opportunity that are kind of going hand in hand. So what is the dream? I mean, what do you want to be in politics? Like, what do you want? What do you want to be, Kanisha? Well, so the dream and the career, I think is a bit different, but you kind of find those pathways together. Yeah. So for me, my dream career would be to become a cardiothoracic surgeon. And there's a personal story. (laughs) I did not have money on that one. I lost the bet there. (laughs) Um, Yes, I I would really just love to be able to give people a second chance at life and another hope for living. And so for me, the way to do that is to become a medical doctor and practice um, cardiothoracic surgery. And of course, I'm very passionate about politics and political systems. So in the future, I definitely see that as an avenue for myself. But even in the UN, I know the WHO is doing a lot of great work for a lot of developing countries. I'd like to see a lot of that work also be translated for countries as a whole, and even, you know, North America and European countries. So I'm very passionate about women's health. We see a lot of times research in that field is very underrepresented and also very underfunded. So for me, being a female, I would really like to um, understand better the effects of different diseases on the impacts of you know, women's health. And I guess the ultimate dream, though, after speaking to a, a larger audience and people who are very influential for me, is really redefining the narrative, redefining what success means in our society. When I talk to a lot of people my age, they say, yeah, we want to become a billionaire. I want to become a millionaire. And there's a lot of songs to go around that as well, a lot of rap as well. But for me, I really want people to want to become an impact billionaire. And to me, that means impacting billions of people as deeply as you can. And if we can all really come together as a society and just further the mission and purpose that we have of making the world a better place one person at a time, one hope spreader at a time, or one hope bag at a time, that's really the purpose that I see for our world. So if there's anything that I would truly want to be, it's a hope spreader and an impact billionaire. I love that, that impact billionaire. That's going to, a lot's going to resonate and and stick with me in this conversation. I want to make people sure that people can connect with you. Uh, You need more, you need more connections than less uh, for, for your ability to continue to impact people near and far. Where can they learn more about Hope Sisters? Where should they be following some of the other projects that you have? Where should they go? We have a website, thehopesisters.com. It's as simple as that. And I'm on all social media except for Snapchat and TikTok. So don't expect me to find there. But you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. And my email is probably public as well. It's probably public as well. Well, what a treat to spend time with you. I think I've enjoyed this more maybe as a father than someone who's worked in education his whole career. But um, continued success. And regardless of how it turns out with the Global Student Prize to get already into the top 50 out of 150 countries uh, and all the accomplishments, uh, I hope that you are given as much runway to create as much impact as as possible. We want to thank Kanisha Aurora uh, out of Toronto. She is uh, quite a treat, quite a quite a special human being that I think we need to uh, support and follow and hopefully interact and in, integrate into the projects that we all have uh, going on around the world to make a difference. Uh, she's definitely doing that. And we look forward to seeing the difference she'll be making in the future. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.